Lord, uh, just ask that you would be with us in this time as we study your word. Pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive it. Lord, I pray that you would be with me as I deliver the message, that you would give clarity and boldness. Also, Lord, that you would guard from error and just deliver the truth as you would have it delivered. And I pray that you would be glorified through it all, for this is about you and not us. It's about your honor and your praise and this season about you. And we, we just want to do our best to, to see that and to worship you in it. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. For Christians, the Christmas season is a devoted time to remember and celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are told in Scripture that approximately 2,000 years ago, God became a man. This is also known as the Incarnation. Very difficult to understand. It is a supernatural work of God in which um, mankind is meant to receive it by faith. Mankind is meant to accept it as being truth because it is in God's word. He became a man. He came to this earth and dwelt amongst men, learning us, experiencing the things that we experience Suffering the way that we suffer, dealing with temptations as we deal with temptations. In all ways, Jesus Christ's life was very, very similar to ours, other than the fact that Jesus Christ never sinned. He lived a perfect life. He lived a sacrificial life. He lived a selfless life. That he dwelt amongst men and that he also brought hope, healing, and deliverance to men. Jesus Christ goal, Jesus Christ's purpose in coming to this earth was to bring deliverance. It was to bring salvation. It was to save his people as the name Jesus means. It was to save his people from their sins. That was the purpose of Jesus Christ's coming. John 1 and verse 1 and also verse 14 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In addition to remembering the birth of Christ in the incarnation, Christmas is also a time to remind us of God's promise to establish his kingdom here on this earth. And that when he established his, king, his kingdom here on this earth, also known as the millennial kingdom, his son, Jesus Christ, who came 2,000 years ago into this world to, to purchase mankind for himself, will then sit on the throne for 1,000 years, reigning on the throne of David. This is a promise that we look forward to. It's a hope that we are expecting, very similar to the Jews after hundreds and even thousands of years anticipating the coming Messiah, and then he comes and he not, does not establish his kingdom. He does not set up his kingdom as they thought he would set up his kingdom. He instead comes to, to bring salvation to mankind that ultimately would lead to him establishing his kingdom. It is important that we, unlike the Jews, recognize God's purposes in coming the second time. It is important that we understand what his purposes will be, that we might understand and see and recognize and accept and acknowledge him for who he is, unlike that of the Jews. Some people have a 
like the Jews, some people have a false understanding of what Jesus Christ will do at his second coming, and therefore they will reject him in his second coming, similar to the way that the Jews rejected him in his first coming. We must have a biblical understanding of why Christ will come in his second coming. One of the most common passages of Scripture read in the Advent, which is where we'll be for the next four weeks, is Isaiah chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter number 9, we know the story, we know the uh, promise that's given there, that there will be a a baby born. In chapter number 7, it says that there will be a child born of a virgin, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which is fulfilled in Matthew in the New Testament. We know, we know it's referring to Jesus. The connection is very clear. And Isaiah, Isaiah's um, pressing us and pressing the Jewish people to accept Jesus is also very clear. And you read the, the journey uh, throughout the book of Isaiah, you see that unfolding. While Isaiah 9 deals with the birth of Christ or what we would call the baby, we would call baby Jesus, which is what the Christmas season is about. When you read Isaiah 9, what you find is that Isaiah 9 is more about Christ the king than it is about Christ the baby. We have the story of Christ the baby because it's meant for us to see in Matthew that this Jesus that's being born is the Jesus that was promised or the Emmanuel that was promised in Isaiah chapter number 7. We're meant to see that connection, the reason for Jesus' birth being emphasized so much in Scripture is to see the connection between the promise of the Messiah to the Jewish people and the fulfillment of the Messiah in the New Testament. But ultimately, what we look forward to and what is the fulfillment of all of Jesus's, of all of the promises of the Old Testament in Jesus is the kingdom. What Jesus Christ came to do in, the, in his first coming was establish a way for there to be a kingdom. Imagine a king with no followers. Imagine a kingdom with no people. It's not much of a kingdom and it's not much of a king if there's no followers and if there's no residence in the kingdom, is it? The first coming is meant to establish a way through which we could become a part of this promised kingdom that will take place in the future. And we're meant on Christmas and we're meant in this um, ceremony as well to see that we have a, a promise that's yet been fulfilled We're still looking forward to something in the future. It's not just about looking back as Christians. It's also about looking forward. This really connects with last nine-week sermons on the resurrection. Because the resurrection is all about looking forward. There's a kingdom that's coming. The scripture says that our citizenship is not of this earth. That our citizenship is in heaven. We're not citizens of this earth. It doesn't say that we're co-citizens either. It says that we're citizens of one place or the other. We're either citizens of the earth or we're citizens of heaven. We're either looking forward to the kingdom coming or we're satisfied in the kingdom that we're in. Isaiah 9 is written, and we'll look at this here more thoroughly, is written under the leadership of the wicked king Ahaz. The people of Judah during this time were not looking or not needing a baby. What they were needing was and is a king. 
And that is why the text in Isaiah 9 is, is, is as much, if not more, about Jesus Christ as the king than it is about Jesus Christ the baby. The text promises us in Isaiah 9 that a king will come. That Jesus Christ will come and be that king, and he will be on the throne of David, and his throne will be an eternal throne. It will never end. We are promised, and I are the Jews, the Hebrews, and I think all believers are promised in Isaiah 9 that there will be a kingdom that will, that will be set up here on this earth, and it will be in, fulfilled in the book of Revelation and for, with a thousand-year reign on the earth, and we will reign with the Lord. This is the promise that the Jews looked forward to and anticipated with the first coming of the Messiah. And we are looking forward to in the second coming of the Messiah. What is interesting about Isaiah 9, verse 6, which we'll read, is that this king that is promised to the Hebrew people and also to all believers is called, is is known as these things, these four... um, Adjectives or four terms that describe Jesus Christ the King. One of them being, and where we'll dwell this morning, is the Wonderful Counselor. But we'll read it together and, and unfold it. There are four, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And in these four proclamations about Jesus, in these four characteristics about Jesus Christ the King, we will find our next four sermons over the next over this Advent season. So I pray that you'll be here for each one of them. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 9, we'll read the first seven verses, and then we're going to do some review, and I hope that you'll just follow along with me as it will be helpful to see some of the history or at least the setting of of this promise. Isaiah 9 and verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land before the Jordan, the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So in in the past time, in other words, in the past time, and we see this fulfilled in Matthew 4, in the past time, the Lord has shined a light on uh, Naphtali and Zebulun. And and in shining the light on them, he has exposed them. It uses the word contempt here. He has has brought contempt on them or he has exposed them in their self-righteousness and sinfulness. And in doing so, he's brought them to a place of humility, very similar to that of of Nineveh with with Jonah. He has brought them to a place when when God shines his light on an individual or on a place, it 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 is immediately met with the proper response is immediately that of repentance. He shines his light on Zebulun. He shines his light on Naphtali. And he's going to shine his light on Galilee, which is where Jesus Christ performs the majority of his ministry in the New Testament. The Bible says in verse number two, the effects of this are going to be the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them his light has shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as one day, as one as on the day of Midian. We can look at Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me because my burden is easy and light. Speaking about Jesus. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior is in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be, born, will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, there will be peace. All war will be over. All need, the Bible talks about, they will fashion weapons into farming tools. They will take that which was used to bring destruction to, and make it into something that's used to be productive. That's the kingdom of the Lord. That's what we look forward to. We're looking forward to this kingdom coming to us. And then in verse number six, he says this, for to us, and the word for here at the beginning just implies that this is, this is the cause of all of the things preceding it. This is the reason why we can expect and look forward to peace. This is the reason why we can expect and look forward to all of the war um, Equipment being fashioned into farming equipment. We can look forward to these things. We can anticipate these things. We can expect these things. We can hope these, for these things for a child is born and a son is given. And it's interesting because the way that the text is written in such a, uh, a present tense sense, a child is born, a son is given, is something that we see, really it's a perfect tense, it's something that we see throughout Scripture where something is so absolute and so sure, it will be written either in the present or past tense, although we know it is actually future tense. The Bible often does this uses this literary tool to, to show the nature of the absolute necessity and the fulfillment of the, the promises that they're absolutely going to come true. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Amen? And we look forward to that, right? It can excite us to think that there's coming a day where peace will have no end, where prosperity in, in God's kingdom will have no end. The, the increase, the, the prosperous nature of the kingdom of the Lord is going to be, is going to be amazing. There will be no end to his peace. And he goes on to say, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then he says at the end, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. It's ultimately the Lord's work, isn't it? And the promises that we look forward to and anticipate are the Lord's work. They're things that he will fulfill and accomplish. So with that in mind, I have four thoughts I want to work through this morning, and I, I, I hope that you'll bear with me. We won't get to Wonderful Counselor till the last thought, but I want to lay a foundation through this um, portion and also beginning really in chapter number seven. If you want to turn back there with me, we might um, 
attach ourselves to a text for a moment or two and see what it says. It's very important that we lay a, a foundation or a background. That's the first point, the background of this promise. If you're taking notes on that sheet I gave out, the background of the promise. This is chapter 7 through chapter number 9. It's so important that we lay a foundation because the backdrop to this text is going to, to help us understand why Jesus focuses on these four things when he, why Isaiah focuses on these four things when he presents to us Jesus. I mean, we could have a number of different uh, terms to describe Jesus in this text, but yet he chooses these four. And I believe that the backdrop that what's preceding this helps us understand why he chooses to use these four terms to describe Jesus. So what we know about this is in chapter number seven, we begin with King Ahaz. King Ahaz is King Uzziah's grandson. King Uzziah died in chapter number six. You'll remember the story. And Isaiah then sees the Lord high and lifted up and his train fields. We we all know that that passage of scripture, that very God-honoring, exalting passage of scripture. Just following that, King Ahaz uh, is enters into the leadership of Judah or becomes the king of Judah and, and takes over the reign of Judah. When he takes over the reign, if you, uh, for study purposes, 2 Kings 16 and, and 2 Chronicles 28 give you a, a real good view of what King Ahaz was like, but ultimately King Ahaz was a wicked king. He was one of the few kings in Judah that wasn't a, uh, a, a solid follower of the Lord. Matter of fact, the scripture says that he, he followed the Lord like the kings of Israel or the, the kings of the northern kingdom did. He followed the Lord like they did, which they were well known for being wicked kings. King Ahaz also was known for having uh, burned one of his own children on the altar uh, to a false god, offering up his child in sacrifice to a false god. He reigned 16 years. His reign started at the age of 20, which is not uncommon for the, this generation uh, of leaders in the Bible to start ruling at a very young age. They were far more mature than the people of our day and age are. They were uh, quick to mature into that which was important and significant in life. When King Ahaz becomes king, he is fearful. Immediately, he is fearful of an impending attack from the two northern kingdoms above him, which would have been the northern kingdom of Israel, and then above that was Syria. King Ahaz was afraid of Syria, and he was afraid, uh, uh, not us Syria, but Syria, and he was afraid of Israel attacking him. The Bible tells us when King Ahaz became king, if you'll look in your Bibles at chapter number 7, that Isaiah is sent to Ahaz, and Isaiah, in the, in the midst of his fear, we all have fears, right? Anybody else in here have fears? Anybody else look around today at our politics and our health and our financial situations, and fear is something that results from it? Anybody like that? I mean, am I, I'm not the only one. I get some head shakes. Good. We're all like that, don't we? We all have fears, So Ahaz becomes king, and he's immediately faced with this challenge that the two kingdoms above him are angry with him. They're wanting to destroy him, and they're ready to destroy him. Matter of fact, the Bible says that they attack, but they're not able to fulfill the attack. They're not able to bring about total destruction. 
So the Lord comes to Isaiah and says to Isaiah, Isaiah, go and say this to Ahaz. He says in verse number four, and say to him, be careful, be cautious, be discerning is what he's saying here. Be wise, Ahaz, be wise. Be wise in this situation. Don't just be, don't just act, but think. He says, be, be careful. He says, be quiet, which is a, a, a term that des, de, describes restfulness. It, it describes not being worried or concerned and, and fearful. I mean, he's going to get to fearful here in a minute, but he says, just be quiet. Don't, don't, don't be worked up, right, and emotionally, and don't be worked up over this situation. It's in the Lord's hands. You're the king of Judah. Judah has followed the Lord under, under your grandfather Uzziah and, and Jotham, your, your father. He followed, you're, you're fine. The Lord's going to take care of this. He says, you know, be calm, be quiet, be restful. He says, do not be afraid, and he says, do not let your heart be faint because of these two, he calls them smoldering stumps, which is what he's saying is, is they're just, they've already been cut off, they're just, they're still smoldering. It's already, it's already happened, their defeat is already in place, they're just a, a smoldering, they're just a fire that's still smoldering. That's how he, that's how he instructs. That's how he instructs Ahaz in regards to the fear that he's dealing with. He says, don't, don't be worried about it because God has this in control. And we won't read further uh, in this part, but if you do read further, you'll see that God basically promises him that everything's going to be okay. He's like, these two nations that are against you, they're not going to stand for very long anyway. They're going to be done away with. So God gives, God gives Isaiah this, this instruction for Ahaz in this very difficult moment not to be afraid, but to trust him. And then in, if you go down into verse number 10, God actually tells Isaiah, or tells Isaiah to tell Ahaz to come to him to seek an affirmation, to seek wisdom from God that God's going to do this. He says, ask, he says tell Ahaz to ask me, ask God for a sign. Tell him to ask me for a sign that the thing that I've just said is going to be fulfilled, right? Ask me for wisdom. You've ever been in that situation before where you just wanted to know if God's will was what it was? So he tells, Isaiah tells Ahaz, says, hey, God told me to tell you to ask him for a sign. He says, as, 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 as high as it is from, to the heavens or as low as it is into the hell, he says, whatever sign he wants, have him ask me for it. So, so God's willing to do anything to or whatever to confirm this promise that everything's going to be okay. The Bible says in the text here in um, chapter 7 in the 10, 11, 12 reigns that Ahaz refuses to ask the Lord. Matter of fact, if you go to chapter number 8, the Bible says that Ahaz instead encourages the people to go the, to the necromancers, to the mediums, to those who are able to communicate with the dead so that they can bring up some dead, old, wise people who will be able to give them instructions and directions instead of receiving the instructions directly from the Lord. I love the way it unfolds, though, because Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask the Lord for confirmation. And you know what the Lord says? The Lord says in this very next phrase, the Lord says, he says, even if you're not going to ask me for confirmation that this is going to happen, I'm going to give it anyway. And I love that about the Lord, right? Sometimes even if we don't ask for direction or wisdom, he gives it anyway. He's really not interested in, in our approval or acceptance of his 
of his uh, guidance and direction and wisdom, he's going to give it to us. He wants us to listen to it because it's going to benefit us. And this is where we have the promise where he says, Behold, uh, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He gives them the confirmation for his promise, even though, even though Ahaz refuses to accept the promise, he refuses to listen to the instruction of Isaiah and refuses to listen to what God had said. Instead, going to, the, going to worldly wisdom, going to the wisdom that is of this world, that is earthly, that is sensual, like James tells us, that is devilish, he goes to the wisdom of this world, refusing to accept the wisdom of God, refusing to accept the counsel of God, refusing to accept the direction of God, but instead coming down to man's world. This is what he does. He is told, Ahaz is told by Isaiah to trust God for victory. In Isaiah chapter number 8, he immediately, when he finds this out, immediately Ahaz begin, uh, begins to start the process of manipulating or conniving a relationship with Assyria, which was north of both Syria and Israel. He begins to work a plan with them to bring destruction to Syria and to Israel. So God says, hey, there's going to be a war, and you're going to win it, and you're going to win it by trusting in me to win it for you. And what does Ahaz, what does Ahaz do? Ahaz goes to another kingdom, another earthly power that was more powerful than all of the kingdoms, and he says, I will get my help from them. I will get my help from man. I won't listen to what the Lord says. I won't submit to what the Lord says. I won't trust in the Lord in this situation that's really, really fearful. What I'll do is I'll trust in man. He does it when the Lord says, come to me for wisdom. And Isaiah says, I'll go to man for wisdom. He says, come to me for strength. And Isaiah says, I will go to the world for strength. He is told to rest in God's provision. We see at the end, and we see as well in chapter number 8, in verse number 5, the Lord uh, spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh. The waters of Shiloh is mentioned in Psalm 46. You can read it in your own time. It was a calm water. It was a water that was seen as being a gift or a blessing from the Lord. They refused the waters of Shiloh. They refused the gift from God. They refused to trust in his provision and his protection. And instead, they put their their trust in man's provision and protection. And what the Lord says here is instead of choosing the waters of Shiloh, which are a gift from God, a miraculous gift from God at that, you have chosen the waters of of the river Euphrates. Instead of accepting and trusting and depending upon the wisdom of God in this situation, the, the, the knowledge of God, the, the, the all-encompassing power of God that's told to us in these four descriptive terms, instead of trusting in those things, Ahaz, Ahaz you have trusted in man again. You have trusted in man again. He's told to rest in God's provision, but he refuses to. He's told to get help from God in this situation. The Bible says in, at the end of verse number 8, he says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be in, enraged 
When they are hungry, they will be enraged. Now, just, just look at it for a moment. Why are they hungry? What have they done? They have refused to trust in the Lord for, 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 for provision, and instead they have trusted in man for, for, for provision. And where do they find themselves? And listen, listen to me, folks. Every time we trust in the Lord, you will find yourself in the long run, down the long road, you will find yourself in despair. That is why we are in despair as a nation Not just when it comes to food, but in every way we're in despair because we have taken our focus off of God and we placed our focus on man's ability to solve problems that are meant for God. That's why we're in despair. That's what happens when we trust in man. Listen to what he says here. He says, and they will be enraged and they will speak content contemptuously against their king and their God. In other words, they will shake their fist in the the moment where the children of Israel have forsaken God and said, we'll do it ourselves. We'll make our own contracts. We'll get our own armies to help us. We'll do our own thing. We're shaking our fist in God's face in that moment. We're angry for him because we're reaping the consequences of our own actions. And who do we get angry at? We get angry at the one who came to us at the beginning and said, trust me, I've got everything under control. Don't be afraid. He says all of these things at the beginning of the story. He says this, they will be contemptuous against their king and their God and they will turn their faces upward and they will and turn their faces upward in anger, verse number 22, and they will look to thee, what's the next word? Where are they going to find their help? Again, in the same situation, over and over and over again, by the leadership and the direction of Ahaz the king, they are going to find their deliverance from earthly things. It's seen over and over and over again throughout this passage of Scripture. I want you to look at verse, uh, chapter number 8. Verse number nine, here's what the response is to their rejection. He says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap up your armor. What does he mean by strap up your armor? He said, you're doing it yourself. You're on your own. Strap up your armor. Get ready for war because you wanted war. You wanted to connive. You wanted to plan. You wanted to follow your own worldly, your own worldly wisdom. You wanted to do all those things. I'll let it happen. Strap up your armor and be shattered. Oh, wait. Here, if you didn't get it, he says it again. Strap up your armor. Put all your worldly systems together and figure it out because you will be shattered as a result. Strap up your armor and be shattered. He says in verse number 10, take counsel together, but know this, it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke to us with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of the people. I 
want you to notice these things here, these warnings. Don't walk in the way of the people. Do not call conspiracy all that the people call conspiracy. Just think about that for a moment. Do not call something, the, the world has a great way of manipulating Christians to think things are conspiracies that are not conspiracies. Do not call a conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Do not see things the way that the world sees things. Do not fear what they fear. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Amen? This is a warning. We want to end up strapping on our armor? If we have this promise in the word of God, if we have this illustration in God's word about what happens when you strap on your armor and don't put your faith in the Lord, do we want to strap on our armor? I would say no. The Bible says in verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. I want you to notice this. When we strap on our armor and don't put our faith in the Lord, we are saying that our armor is holy. That's what he's saying here. Let him be holy. Let him be trusted. Let him be reverenced. He says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble at it. They shall fall and be broken and shall be snared and taken. He says in verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. You say, what does that mean, Pastor John? What does it mean when the Lord hides his face from us? It means that he has turned his back on us. It means that he has left us to our own devices. And I'm not, conv- I'm not convinced that America is either not on the very threshold of that or has not already passed that threshold where the Lord has said, you're on your own. You have so many systems. You have so many plans. You have so many ways of doing the things that you think should be done. You have so many earthly ways that I'm just going to leave you to yourself until you figure out that your way is not the right way. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. The backdrop is this king, Ahaz, who refuses to trust in the Lord, refuses to put his faith in him, refuses to depend upon him in difficult and hard situations, but would rather put his faith in some type of earthly system that has put in place to accomplish the things that only God can accomplish. And in the end, we know that the result is is that God turns his back and God doesn't involve himself any longer. This is not too far from where we're at in America I think of the counselors and the 
counseling books and all of the things that we have that are meant to help us get where we need to be, which have ultimately led to us forsaking the Word of God and forsaking the Holy Spirit and forsaking the church, which are God's means of communicating His ways of deliverance and have accepted man's ways of deliverance. And you know what's interesting? It's a friend of mine back in Nebraska, a, a doctor friend of mine, he said this. He said, Pat, he said, he said, I was working for him, so he called me John. He said, John, he said, what's interesting to me is he's like, I give out more and more vaccines for the flu every year. And you know what he said? He said, you know what amazes me? He said, the number of vaccines for the flu has gone up dramatically, and the number of flus has gone up dramatically. It's like it hasn't declined. It's like you would think if we medicate it, it's going to go down. But it just keeps on going up and keeps on going up. There's something wrong. There's something broken. The Bible says in chapter 9 and verse number 1, I'm not going to get through a lot of this, but you guys will, I will work through these last two and then I'll leave the next one for next week. So first of all, it is the background of the promise. Secondly, it is the remnant of the promise. Notice that there's just a small group of people that are going to get this. He says that there's a people, there's a people that have been set apart, there's a people that have been, that have been set aside to get this. The text uses the term that a light has shone on them. The Lord always, remember this, the Lord always has a remnant. The Lord always has a remnant. There's always a group of people that have been set apart to reflect on him in difficult and hard situations. In chapter number 8, verse 11 through 15, we won't read it, but I would encourage you to do so in your own time. We see this obvious distinction between believers and unbelievers, those to whom the light has shined and those to whom the light has not shined. In the New Testament, the term that's used is that they have ears to hear. Let them who have ears to hear, let them hear. There are people who don't have ears to hear. There are people who do have ears to hear spiritually, and they're able to discern these things. He's like, he's, he's, what he's saying is, is that there is, a, there, is a, there is a remnant of people who are meant to not trust in the world. They're meant to trust in God. We're meant to reflect what it looks like. We're like men, like Daniel. Remember, Daniel was offered the king's meat, and he's like, ah, I don't want to eat the king's meat. He's like, let me, eat the, let me eat the Lord's food, and you eat the king's meat, and we'll compare at the end of the day, right? That's what we are. That's what we are. We're meant to trust God, and then we can compare trusting God versus trusting man and see what happens at the end of the day. Do you guys think God's going to prove himself in that situation? I'm convinced that we don't trust, that there's no group trusting God fully anymore. And therefore, God has turned his back completely. And there's no, there's, no, there's no distinction between those who are following Jesus and those who are following the world. Remember, the Lord calls the world's wisdom. What does the Lord call the world's wisdom? Folly, foolishness. I don't know. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. Right? Did that make any? Of course the world's wisdom is foolishness. If God says it, it's true. There's a remnant, a called out 
assembly, a called out group. In chapter 9 and verse number 1, he says, There is a group who, will not, who were in gloom, but they have seen the light. They have been delivered from it. Remember this, even though deliverance is offered to all, the promise of deliverance is something that God promises will bring forth a remnant, a small group. So maybe we're meant to be that group in Hollister, California, the group that distinguishes themselves as those who are not willing to strap on the armor and figure it out through the world's systems, but we're only willing to strap on Jesus. And that we're willing to trust him, forgive the expression, come hell or high water. Matter of fact, he uses the term here in this text that, that he trusted in Assyria. I didn't tell you this part, but he trusted Assyria to help him defeat, defeat uh, Syria and Israel. And the Lord says when he gets to, when he defeats, when, when Assyria defeats uh, Syria and Israel, you know what the Lord puts in Assyria's heart? Why don't you just keep on going? Judah's right there. And the Bible says that Assyria then destroys Judah. The plan that they had connived, the trap that they had set, became their own trap and became their own demise. He says that the waters will flow through Assyria, the waters, the waters will flow through Syria, the waters will flow through Israel, and the waters will flow through Judah up to the neck. The remnant of the promise. And then the last thought this morning is the recognition of God's character. The remnant, notice this, the remnant sees Jesus in the following four ways. The remnant sees, on the backdrop of Ahaz teaching the people to see the world system as being all of these things, on the backdrop of Ahaz leading the the God's people to trusting in the world, the Lord says there's a remnant that has been set apart that will see me in these ways. He says, and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called. The word here literally means to call out. It's to cry out. You ever been in a difficult situation? Hard situation, fearful situation, what do you cry out for? Think about it. Where do we cry out for? Who do we cry out to? That's what he's saying, that in this difficult moment, while Ahaz has led you to cry out to other armies and strapping on your own strength and all of these things, I am calling you to see Jesus as the one to pursue. I am calling you to call out to him, to cry out to him. They realize that Jesus Christ has the character of the great, of the four things that we'll look at. Let me read these verses to you. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call unto me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and hidden things that you have not known. Romans 10, verses 13, 12 and 13 says, There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a promise that comes from Isaiah 9, 6. Wonderful counselor, 
In moments where we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the understanding, we don't have the knowledge to fix our issues. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God in moments where we don't have the strength to get through it. Everlasting Father in moments that we don't have the comfort to get through it. Prince of Peace in moments where we don't have the peace to deal with things. We cry out to God, and the Bible says that those who truly cry out to Him will find deliverance. I would say that in the midst of our cultural philosophy of of Fixing things in our own strength, the two things that have declined enormously is prayer and the reading of God's word. And not just prayer, but crying out to God and then getting up from that prayer and either expecting him to act or expecting nothing to happen. When the apostle Paul prayed in 1 Corinthians 12 or 2 Corinthians 12 that the infirmity would pass from him, he got up and he prayed again, and he prayed again, and then he said, your grace is sufficient for me. You must have a purpose in this. He didn't then try to figure it out in a worldly way. Psalm 18, verse 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. I'm going to skip the wonderful counselor. I think we'll look at it next week. Maybe we'll combine two. But I just I want you to think about what he's, he's saying with Ahaz in the backdrop, who is trusting totally in man. What is he saying when he says, Jesus will be the wonderful counselor? When Ahaz's counsel is to do everything earthly, he says, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is the antithesis of Ahaz. He is the opposite of Ahaz. Let me close by reading to you this entire psalm. I think it's an important passage that it helps us. It'll encourage you this this Christmas season. As As we seek to honor Christ this Christmas season, we don't honor him by doing what we want to do. We honor him by recognizing who he is and what he wants us to do. One of the greatest ways that you can acknowledge the Lord and glorify him this year at Christmas is go to him for counsel. You need help, you're in difficulty, you don't understand something, seek the answer from his word and from prayer. Right? Those are the only two means that he's given us. Right? We, we, we believe this, we like, we like talk, God only speaks through his word. Right? How many of us believe that? And his spirit. Yeah, well, not a lot of you raise your hand, but I'm assuming that most of you believe that. So why is it that we don't go to his word for counsel? Why is it that we go to every other earthly means that's going to direct us in ways that will give us earthly success? How many of you know that you don't go to a counselor when he doesn't tell you what you want to hear? And the reason why we don't go to the Lord for counsel is because he will often tell us what we don't want to hear. Let me read this to you. Psalm 145, he says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the, of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give, uh, shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. Amen? The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of the Lord look to you, and you give them their food in due season. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways, and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all of those who call on him. To all of those who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Psalm 145. Let's pray together. Father, it is, it is humbling to see how we are as a culture, to know how self-sufficient we are, to know how easy it is in our world systems to lean on systems to lean on programs, to lean on all of these things and to forsake your very holiness, to deny your goodness, to deny you the opportunity to provide for your people, to deny you the opportunity to care for your people. Lord, help us as a, as a church to draw near to you this season, to restore the recognition of you as being the not only the wonderful counselor but the only counselor that your word is the only thing that we have for truth help us to dig to know what you desire from us to submit to it and to see your fruits as a result we love you lord we thank you for your word we pray that you would press it into our hearts we might be changed for your glory in Christ's name.